Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 37 of the Top Dog Talk podcast. Back alongside my co-host, Dan Kiley. Dan, how's it going to you today? How's it going for you today? Sorry. It's just another great day, man. Another busy day. And uh, what a way to end up. I, I really enjoy this. It's a way to kind of just get everything out in the open and and just go with it. Heck yeah. I mean, we got, you know... Second episode in a row where we don't have a bunch of breaking news uh, that just kind of pan, you know kicks the can down the road topic wise. Uh, we're actually able to sit down today and, and plan out an episode uh, as to what we want to talk about, and I, I think we got some pretty good topics. We got you know coming up, we got a new what's the latest topic with Dan Kylie. We got a new series. Hopefully, we're going to be continuing throughout the week. This time, it's going to be focusing around Miami football, specifically that coaching staff, and then to end. We have to take the chainsaw to some of these takes regarding Georgia's quarterback room. A lot of overreactions, and we'll get to that later on in the show. That is, as we call, the main event topic of today's episode. So, Dan, let's kick it off. What's the latest with Dan Kiley, where Dan finds a topic that he likes, something that he may be, as Brooks says, hot about, uh, and, and lets him take take the show by take the bull by the horn and steer in whatever direction. So, Dan, I'm gonna kick it over to you. Well, this topic should be one that everybody has an opinion on because it has changed and evolved so much in the past 20 years that it's almost unrecognizable. And what am I talking about? What am I talking about? I'm talking about youth sports. Youth sports have exploded to a level that is almost unrecognizable. The amount of money that people spend on youth sports, the amount of pressure that people are putting on these kids. And I'm not completely innocent of this, okay? But it's just this, every single morning now, it seems like when you listen to the radio or watch news, something has happened in youth sports. And and you can approach this from any angle. You can talk about from the coaching angle, from the, uh, you know, the coaches, the amount of crap that they have to deal with the parents is one angle. Umpires, referees, officials of any kind, the amount of nonsense that they have to put up with kids, coaches, and players, uh, you know, parents, anybody, just spectators in general. People don't even have kids in the game uh, just losing their mind. And then you have the angle from the kids, and then <clears> – <throat> This is an enormous topic, so I'm trying to think the best way to attack this so I can kind of get my overall thought in there, and that is, what in the hell have we done to youth sports? Because it starts now in a very young age. I can use baseball, for example, where teams and kids are talking about leaving the park It's six and seven years old after playing baseball for one year. You're not elite at anything in one year. Are you out of your damn mind? One year. You're like, oh, my my boy, he uh, playing on that T-ball team. You know, he, man, he hit uh, 475 last year and had uh, nine T-ball home runs. Yeah, you know what a T-ball home run is, right? It's when you hit it to the damn first baseman and just keep running. So it's it's absurd. I, and I'm not joking. If you think I'm full of crap, go get on any app you want to right now. There are 100, 150 teams in the metro Atlanta area that are five- and six-year-old that are travel teams. It's absurd. You got basketball players, basketball teams for five- and six-year-old that are elite travel teams. You're not elite at anything at five and six. So you may not like this, but what I call it is at five and six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old is a lot of these parents win the sperm lottery. Okay. It's where your kid develops first and they're a bigger, faster, and stronger, and they're able to dominate a sport, but that doesn't mean they're actually any good at it. Once you get to the eighth and ninth grade, 10th grade, you know, that's when genetics take over. That's when kids hit puberty. And genetics take over. So the the mom who's five foot two, the dad who's five foot five, and they got their baby that's out there balling at five and six years old. Chances are he's not going to be six seven, six ten when he gets to high school. Okay, he's probably going to be five five, five six, just like his mommy and daddy. And 
he's going to look just like his mommy and daddy. So when mom's 352 pounds and she's out there talking about my baby going to take by my house, no, the hell he's not. Okay. He's going to max out. And then the kids who have been playing rec ball, but, and then that's the other part of it too, is that rec ball is so bad now because everybody's playing travel that there's nothing left for the rec programs. When I grew up playing and, and, I'm not trying to be that guy again, but geez, oh, Pete. When I grew up playing, we played for fun. and We were competitive as hell, and we wanted to win. And, like, All-Stars at the end of the year was cool, right? But you played in your park. You competed against these people, and nobody talked about going pro or going to college or anything like that. Nobody talked about that stuff. You just went out and played. And now you got these parents talking about, Oh yeah, my kid's gonna do this, that, and the other, or my kid's getting exposure for this, that, and the other. College coaches are not allowed to watch anybody under ninth grade. So <clears throat> if we're playing in a basketball tournament, like my son is in eighth grade, okay. Any tournament that my son plays in, there are no college coaches there watching his games while an eighth grade team is in the building. They're not allowed to. The showcase tournament, the, the the tournaments that the college coaches can go to are high school only. So they're 9th, 10th, 11th grade, and they're high school only. Because if you have an 8th or 7th grade team playing, they're not allowed to be there. So what are they getting exposed to? Who are they getting exposed to? The college coaches aren't there. These travel tournaments, you got a 9-, 10-year-old kid pitching six games in a weekend. How in the heck is that good for their development? So – I don't know, man. I just think it's way too much. And I'm like, again, I'm guilty too. Uh, my son has been playing competitive basketball for quite a while. And it's just, you know, as you go and you see these tournaments and see how these people act and all this other stuff, it just has gotten over the top. And I know you've played. So what's your perspective? I think youth sports, I mean, like you said, I mean, they have changed. I mean, it's become very heavily influenced by adults. And I mean, not really surprising in the fact that adults have, you know, run the league. And I think everyone's thankful that we do have people that still run the leagues and all that and everything. But I think there's been too much pressure. And I think it's something, you know, Kirby Smart was touching on when it comes to uh, all these five star players. There's been a lot of pressure put on kids from a very young age where, you know, you could be five, you know, six or seven years old playing basketball or football basically from that beginning and you know you you flash you're there in rec league and everyone starts to put on expectations of being a five star and and being like hey you know you keep working at so and so keep working at this sport and keep doing this you know college coaches will find your college you know you will get to the next level when they don't spend enough time trying to tell these kids it's not all about what you do in your athletics it's it's you know you also got to be more focused on other stuff as well. Like, you know, bring academics and everything into your life to make you a real rounded, not only athlete, but human and student as well. And I think that's the, that's where youth sports has changed. I think there used to be more of a focus on letting kids play to have fun. Well, nowadays it's you play because everyone thinks you're going to go D one from the moment you step foot on the court. And, and I think one of the unintended consequences that is really punishing these kids is it's giving them a false sense of hope and it's giving them almost an entitlement. Like this is the conversation I had with my own child. And he was like, you know, I was telling him how important it is to make sure that he maintains good grades and, and he needs to start putting more and more effort into his grades. It's like, I, that's great that you're putting all this effort into athletics, but you need to be a great student as well. And he says, well, I'll just go pro out of high school. And I'm like, no, you, you're not that good. Like, I, I mean, I, I never want to crush my own child's dreams or anything like that. And I'm not saying that maybe one day is not possible, but he's not that good. And, and, and there's a million other kids just like him. And, and this whole culture starting to give them, like, they just built the overtime elite center over here by Atlantic station. Okay. So you're paying high school kids to go over there and play now. Well, you know, as soon as they graduate high school to go play there instead of going to college and they get paid to play. 
and it's allowing these kids to think that they don't need school. And when I was growing up and whenever I decided I got into high school and college started becoming become a reality, what my dad told me, my dad's an idiot and he said a lot of stupid stuff, but every once in a while he had a gem of good advice. And the good advice he gave me was use your athletic ability to get an education. That is your goal. That is my goal for you is that you're good enough to get somebody to pay for your education. And then anything that happens after that is just a bonus. It's, it's, it's just, that's great. But your goal in life is not to go pro. Your goal in life is to get somebody. He said, just fool them. <laughs> just get somebody to pay for your education. And then, you know, I don't care if you play one snap or one quarter or one play. It doesn't matter. Get somebody to pay for your education. Take advantage of them. Take their money and, and get that education so that you can have a better life than I have. And that's my goal for my son. And my daughter or whoever else, anybody I coach is just get somebody to pay for your education. Get yourself to college. Get yourself to college. Take advantage of it. Do a great job there. And if you get anything else beyond that, that's great. But like I said, unintended consequences is filling these heads, these kids' heads with a lot of nonsense. And I think we're starting to see the the pressure of, you know, at such a young age starting to affect people you know starting to affect the kids when they get to the higher levels of the game obviously uh you know there's i mean if you have the pressure of going d1 from the moment you step onto a football field and then once you get on that football field the pressure of succeeding and living up to your quote-unquote five stars i mean we've seen you know yes there is players that don't pan out and then there are players that do pan out but we i mean we see the toll it takes on these guys i mean your whole life uh you're expected to go play at a high level. And I think Eric Gilbert stepping away from football due to personal reasons and, and now, you know, coming back and, and Kirby Smart trying to temper expectations, let everyone know, like, hey, you know, we, we got to stop this whole nonsense of, hey, you're five stars, you're going to come in here and be a thousand-yard receiver from the moment you step foot on campus, you know? Like, you're not going to come in here and, and break Terrence Edwards' thousand-yard receiver receiving, you know, record from from day one it's not going to happen nothing's going to be given to you uh and i think i think it all resonates back in many cases for a lot of kids uh and a lot of college students is and and probably in the program as well is youth when they you know they found they peaked early kind of well not peaked early they developed a lot earlier they had the skill set they had the genetics from the moment they stepped on the court and you know they got to they got a head start on everybody and then the expectations set in and as they get older, the pressure gets more and more and more. And now I think, like Dan said, people are starting to realize that if you want it, the, the best chance for your people to go pro or get to the next level, um, specifically from high school, is travel ball. Specifically for, for basketball, baseball, I mean, tons of sports. If you want to, if you, your best chance of going to the next level is going travel ball and going to camps when you get an opportunity. Well, especially in baseball now, like high school, <clears throat> high school games, they don't even get college scouts there. They don't. The pro scouts, they very rarely go to high school baseball games anymore. They go to the to the PBR, PGR, perfect game stuff or whatever, because they can go see 25 of the best prospects in America on the same fields. Because they're all in the same tournament in the same parks. They can go to one location and see 25 kids. And most of your high school baseball teams have one guy. Maybe two that they're looking at. And so you're going to waste an entire day to go watch one or two guys. This doesn't happen anymore. It just doesn't. I mean, I was an official, an umpire. You know, I, I would go to high school games. You'd have uh, – Luke Sims, guy, I mean, I know you know who he is, right? Pitch for the Braves, Luke Sims. I've done his games. Um, uh, gosh, Charlie Blackman plays for the, um, the Rockies. Matt, Matt, Matt Olson did his games in high school. So, I mean, I've seen all these guys. But the, the high school, they don't, the college and pro scouts, they don't line those games. But if you go do a perfect game weekend, 
where all the top, you know, top 25 teams in the country are all there. Yeah, they're there. They're absolutely there. And same with high school basketball. I mean, very rarely you see coaches in the stands, but you go to the AAU tournaments, when you go to these showcases like at Lake Point, every every damn college coach in the country is there, every last one of them. So to say that they don't, like I, I hear a lot of people say, hey, you stupid, whatever, you don't need AAU to go to college. You don't. You don't have to play AAU to go to college. You do absolutely do not. That is a true statement. But it doesn't hurt. But you know, I guess to finish up my my thing, and I think we've gone on long enough because I'm sure people are tired of listening to it, but I think the biggest factor of all of this is the parents. The parents ruin everything. Um, they put too much pressure too fast. They, they're just unrealistic. Just go go to a game. Go to a game. It doesn't matter where you go. Just go to a game and just go listen to the people in the stands. It's it's absurd. The amount of stuff that they yell at the officials, they don't know that they don't even know the damn rules. They don't even know them. Not even a little bit. But they're yelling like they do. Yelling, yelling, just yelling at everybody. It's it's absurd. If you just need to know how out of control it is, just go listen. Just go to a game and just listen. Absolutely. And that brings to an end to the newest What's the Latest with Dan Kiley. Guys, keep sending us. I mean, if you have suggestions of what you want us to hear us talk about or what we should talk about, heck, if you even want to come on the show, we'll give you five minutes to give us a topic and, and let you weigh in, kind of call-in style, uh, if that's the thing people are interested in. But moving on, we've had this in the back of our mind for a few weeks now. I think ever since you came on to the show, this has been an idea we came up with and, and something we wanted to do. Uh, and and kind of, I mean, we, we, we've put it off for a rainy day because we've had so much stuff come out just out of the blue that we've had stuff to cover from, I mean, basically from the first episode to, you know, the last episode this past Monday. So, or this past Tuesday, excuse me. So, we're starting a new series. It, I'm, we're going to term it the Contender or Pretender Staff Edition. Now, we're going to be looking into the staffs of some of these new coaches, some of these new hires that we see in college football from around uh, the college football world, starting with Miami. I think probably one of the biggest hires there was this offseason, in my opinion, one of the best hires there was this offseason. When you look at culture-wise, his, history-wise, looking at the background, Mario Cristobal, there was not a better option for Miami football than Mario Cristobal, in my opinion. I think Dan may agree with me, agree with me on this one. Um, we may disagree on the fact who got the best hire this offseason. But, Dan, let's go into it. Contender, pretender. I mean, looking at the staff, look at Mario Cristobal specifically. 35-13 and 13 at Oregon. 10-3 and three this past season. Took him to three North Division titles. Won the Pac-12 twice. Uh you look at 2019, won the Rose Bowl, capped off a 12-2 and season, probably his best season there at Oregon. Now he goes to Miami. First off, before we get into Miami, what was your overall thought on Cristobal and his tenure at Oregon? Do, do you have, I mean, do you think he overachieved or was he about where you would expect looking I, back? I, I would say he underachieved to a degree. There's absolutely zero competition out in the Pac-12 right now. USC is a monster program. USC is one of the best four jobs in the country. When they're humming, Pete Carroll showed you what they're capable of. When they want to be successful, you can't beat them. You just can't. I mean, they have LA, they have everything, and they don't have to play anybody – USC, in my opinion, is the most dominant team in the country if it's done right. Alabama's great, and they've got Nick Saban, and, and they've been on this roll, and nobody can beat them and all that stuff. But look where it is. It's in Tuscaloosa, freaking Alabama, okay? Ain't nobody want to live there. Ain't nobody want to spend the rest of their life in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Hell, Nick Saban doesn't. The minute he retires, his ass is out of there. But USC out in the West Coast, oh my goodness, right? So they're down, and there's really no competition anywhere in there. Oregon has really taken that mantle of the team in the Pac-12. They can pretty much do whatever the hell it wants to, and they they have the Nike money. They got Phil Knight in their back pocket. So whenever I started to hear whispers and rumors, and it's not like, again, we're not insiders, so it's not like I was privately hearing this, but – 
whenever there were whispers and rumors that he was going to leave Oregon to go to Miami, I thought that was ludicrous. I was like, there's no way you would leave Oregon because you have no pressure. Nobody's putting any pressure on you. You have everything you need to be successful. I don't think there's ever been a coach at Oregon that's ever gone to the administration or to Phil Knight and said, hey, I need this to be successful. Their campus is absolutely gorgeous. I have heard their stadium is the loudest because of the way it's designed. I, they have a bazillion different uniform combinations, which kids love. There is nothing in, There is nothing you need to be successful that Oregon can't provide to you other than great weather, right? So I didn't think he was going to leave. So did I, but I, I thought he was underachieving a little bit because there was no, there was nothing in his way of being successful. I don't know if I'm articulating that properly, but he had everything in front of him. There's no reason why they shouldn't have been in the final four every year. Cause there's, there was no hurdles to jump over. So I think he underachieved a little bit. Now, him going to Miami, you asked the question, is that one of the biggest hires? Absolutely. The guy is a good coach, and he's going home with a lot of momentum. So, yeah, that's a hell of a hire. And I think, you know, it, what makes it even bigger is the hall. When you look at his coaching staff, I mean, it makes it even bigger. I mean, I'm, I'm looking – I put it in the notes just basically – Four of the top hires this offseason for coaching staff. I mean, he hired Josh Gaddis away from Michigan to be his offense coordinator. It was a lateral move for Josh Gaddis. I'm sure so, he got a heck of a pay raise. Let's take these one at a time. Instead of just giving the whole the whole list, let's take them one at a time. Josh Gaddis from Michigan. My stepdad is a huge Michigan fan, and he's in all those Michigan forums. There were people that were unhappy with him at Michigan. So did he steal him away? I don't know. Or is it just a convenient hire? Offense coordinator from big school? Okay. What's your opinion on Gaddis? You know, Gaddis, I felt like now it could have been the narrative in which Gaddis's people or representatives were trying to spin. From my perspective, it looked like Gaddis was upset a little bit with the way Harbaugh situation was going down and the fact that Harbaugh was trying to go to the NFL. Everybody knew it, but Michigan was staying quiet and, and not really, you know, saying much other than the fact that, the, you know, I think at, at the tail end of the Harbaugh saga that they were going to go outside to hire somebody. And Gaddis thought he was being disrespected because, I mean, he came to Michigan. He basically, I, I don't want to say revolutionized that offense, but he made that offense much better than it should have been. I mean, their offense this past season, I mean, that offense isn't as good if if you don't have Josh Gaddis as your play caller because I think, you know, he's coming from the Alabama mold. He had experience in Tuscaloosa. He knows what it takes to build a good offense. And, I mean, you got just about everything you can out of Kay McNamara. I mean, everyone you, – you talk about game managers today in college football. Cade McNamara is what every – is what everyone said Jake Fromm was, in my opinion. You know. Yeah. Except Gaddis didn't call plays. Harbaugh called the plays. He may have put the game plan in, but Harbaugh called the plays. So I, I Gaddis is the one on this list that I'm not high on. But I get what you're saying. I, you know, I just with with his experience, I, I'm I'm high on him automatically. I think you know what looking at what he did at Michigan this past year, putting that Georgia game aside. Uh, I, I thought he did well. Now, obviously, I'm not the biggest Michigan follower. You know, I, I watched a few games here and there. And from from what I've seen, I mean, their offense was pretty cut and dry. I mean, you know, there wasn't much. I mean, when you compare him to Steve Sarkeesian, um, there ain't nothing there. Um, there ain't no window dressing. Ain't nothing, ain't nothing flashy about it. But I think that's what makes, in my opinion, when you're judging an offense coordinator, I judge him pretty highly because what he did with that personnel – I mean, the scheme fit. I mean, they fit. They fit, you know, like a glove. So you want to know who a great comp for him is? Jim Chaney. It is. He ran the ball. He ran he, every game. That's what they did. They ran the ball. They ran. Even had they didn't throw for it. it. Huh? Even well, had t-shirts for it. Yeah, they just they just ran the ball. I mean, it's. And, and then they relied on trick plays. I don't know how well. And if you think about 
this is something that uh, we've heard from a lot of different places is that you can pretty much call whatever the hell you want to when you have the talent advantage, right? So when we look at Georgia's schedule, Georgia has the talent advantage in pretty much every game, right? So you're going to be sick. I think we've had a lot of different guys talking about this, and I think it's true where you can pretty much call whatever you want to when you have the talent advantage and you're going to have success most every single weekend. But like with Munkin this year, we saw a lot of creativity, right? It wasn't the fact that we were doing well because we would have done well. Anyway, even if Coley was still our offensive coordinator, not, we wouldn't have won a national title, I don't think. But we still would have had success on 90% of our schedule, correct? So with Gaddis, a lot of times they were having success because they had more talent. But what did he do in a game where the talent was equal, Right. They got freaking embarrassed by Michigan State. Well, no, I'm sorry. They lost to Michigan State in, in, in a game where they, you know, it was it was a good game. Okay, it was a good game. And my stepdad would tell you it was a fluke. But Georgia embarrassed the shit out of them. And they couldn't do anything on offense. So if you're such an elite offensive coordinator, you couldn't get anything going. Because your trick plays aren't going to work against a, a good defense. I'm just not a big fan of Gaddis, that's all. You know, it's tough to judge them, you know, like, obviously there's a little bit of bias in me because obviously, you know, watching Georgia all year, um, not many good offense coordinators had success against them, and there really was only one. And it was, I mean, mainly because Georgia's only true matchup, talent for talent, was Alabama. And I think that's probably been the same for the last six years under Smart, minus 2016 where you know that wasn't that wasn't his group but and and 19 where LSU was obviously I I think probably either equal or better talent wise than Georgia was that year so I I I like the guy to hire I I think he'll find success he's going to a spot like Miami in the ACC where really I mean Clemson's Clemson it's lazy to say Clemson's gonna win the ACC that's like saying Alabama's gonna win the SEC just because as of as of late it's been you know magazine when magazines come out it's Alabama that to win the SEC because it's easy you're never wrong you can never go wrong even if they don't win you know so what uh and then with Clemson as uh, over the last five to ten years it's it, that's been the easy answer I I think he has a lot to draw on I, I think Gaddis will sell to recruits the only question is when he gets the pieces in place can he deliver like you and- said and is he an elite recruiter? Because he'd never – I mean, who are the offensive weapons that he's got that he got over everyone else? Does that make sense? Like, And even Michigan fans would be screaming at you that they weren't even starting J.J. McCarthy, their uh, five-star quarterback, you know? Right. Well, hey, there's a lot of people who feel like McCarthy should have been starting. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, listen, we at Georgia are no uh, – we are – right up to date on the quarterback controversy. So uh, anyway, I think we should probably move on from Gaddis, but you know, he, they could have done worse. A lot worse. And I think that's the big takeaway next though. I think we may be in the same line here. Kevin Steele for defensive coordinator. Absolute. I mean, first off, I forgot about Kevin Steele. I didn't know where he was last year. Uh, I, I, to be honest with you, it wouldn't surprise me if he had a job last year and I just wasn't paying attention. I mean, some of the defenses he built at Auburn were, I mean, pretty dang good. I mean, a, a respectable unit all year round. And Auburn didn't recruit half as near as good as they probably could have. Yeah. Kevin Steele is a good name, and he's a name that everybody knows. But there's another guy on this defensive staff that I would prefer to have as my defensive coordinator. But we'll get to him next. But Kevin Steele is a is a good football coach. Had some success at a lot of different places. But Auburn always recruits defense really, really well. So I guess my question to him would be: What what was the deal with you last year not being able to get a lot of those high level guys? Is it just because Georgia is just getting everything that they want right now, and Alabama is getting everything they want, and there's just nothing left over? But I mean, he, he's a he's a good name. Kids know that name. 
So he, he's going to do well. But the next guy is who I want, who I would have picked as my defensive coordinator. And moving on and that to this next guy, I'm, I'm sure most of you probably know who Dan's talking about. Uh, former Texas head coach Charlie Strong is the co-defensive coordinator in linebackers coach. Spent last season with Urban Meyer at the Jacksonville Jaguars in the NFL. I believe he was the linebackers coach uh, for the Jaguars, if I'm not wrong. Uh, so, Dan, I'm going to let you take it away on Charlie Strong. What, what makes you so high on Charlie Strong as a coach? Charlie Strong's defenses when he was at Florida Gators were freaking outstanding. He's a hell of a recruiter, really good football coach, and he got passed over and screwed over for some jobs for some different reasons, if you believe what you hear, that had nothing to do with football and just downright embarrassing, to be completely honest. He goes to Texas, becomes a head coach out there, and I – I'm not 100% sure why it didn't work. Maybe because he just didn't have the relationships that you need to be successful out there in Texas. I've only been to Texas a couple different times, and and I've been around, and I know a lot of people that live in Texas, and it's all about relationships out there. And if you don't have them, they basically, if you're not part of their network, they will cut you out, and you've got like no chance to be successful. So I think that had a lot to do with it, but I've just kind of always been a fan of his even though you know he's never been a part of my team so to speak i just think he's done a great job everywhere he's been and and again i don't necessarily think he was ever in a position to be successful at texas not because of anything he did or anything the university did i think the university wanted him to be successful that's not the point i'm making i'm just i'm thinking it was a no-win situation to go out there but hell if they're gonna pay me that kind of money i'm gonna go too you know, and I think dissecting Texas may be a topic for another episode because, I mean, that's a really interesting situation. I mean, a lot of people are comparing it right now to Alabama and, and 07 before Saban or 07, you know, that, that kind of mold where the the people above, the people pulling the strings with the money, kind of like Auburn, have kind of infested that program, have made it, you know, worse than it should be. So, I mean, I mean that that's just another topic for another episode, but, I mean, I think – that would be an interesting topic to discuss as to why Charlie Strong didn't work. But, I mean, here's the thing. Putting his head coaching resume aside, you know, what he did at Louisville was pretty dang impressive. I mean, Teddy Bridgewater was the best quarterback he's probably coached uh, as a head coach. So, but putting that all aside, he has he has Florida ties. He can recruit the state of Florida. I mean, in his, I think it was either his first or second recruiting class, he got a five-star, if I'm, mistaken, if I'm mistaken, I'm sorry, it's either – High, it's either a five-star or a very high four-star Malik Jefferson linebacker right out of the state of Florida and plucked him to the University of Texas within a year or so. And that was the staple of the Charlie Strong defense for as long as he was there. There is no questions that Charlie Strong has relations to the state of Florida. And I think that's what makes people like Dan so excited. Not only do they know what he did for the University of Florida when he's the defense coordinator there under Urban Meyer, but they've seen that he could recruit the state. And I think that makes them the perfect one A to the one, the perfect one B to the one A of Kevin Steele. I mean, you know, Kevin Steele coached, coached at Auburn for a long time, was in the SEC for a long time, but I don't think he has the ties to the state of Florida to be able to recruit like Charlie Strong will, which I think makes that such a, I mean, that's, that's a strong hire. And I agree with Dan. I mean, it's that that's going to pay dividends over the next few years. Cause I mean, you're already setting up a replacement for Kevin Steele when and if he gets a shot at being head coach. Yeah, I just don't know why you don't flip him. But maybe maybe the sales pitch to Charlie Strong was that Kevin Steele's going to be the defensive coordinator. You're going to be the linebacker coach, but you're going to be our head recruiter. Like, you're going to be the guy that goes out and gets all these pieces on defense, and we're, we're going to make you, you know, not the D.C. so you can focus more time on recruiting. Maybe that's a sales pitch. But he's got uh, he's got some talent on that defensive sideline with him far as the recruiting goes so the next guy that you're going to talk about we already know this guy can go get him here's where it's going to get interesting because i think there's a lot of smoke uh a lot of smoke with with this jamal adai jamal adai and every georgia fan unless you didn't really pay attention to the the behind the scenes of it knows jamal adai as the former db coach was here for one season, came over from West Virginia, did an exceptional job 
I don't care how you feel about him leaving for Miami, whether it's a lateral move or not, he did an exceptional job. Helped sign one of the greatest defensive back classes that Georgia has had ever. I mean, maybe of all time, looking at all the programs, I, I don't remember a, a defensive back class as stacked and as filled as Georgia just got this past recruiting cycle. Absolutely loaded. Jamal Adai was a big part of that success. Uh, you know, helped with getting a very, very young secondary playing at a high level year-round, uh, all season for Georgia. So, Dan, I mean, this guy, we know he can recruit. He has Florida ties. Pretty sure he play, he's from Tampa, Florida, if I remember. I, I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, Brooks calls him a rising star in the industry. You can't go wrong with this hire, can you? No, I mean, listen, that is a fantastic hire. And Miami, you said you can't think of a secondary that was, you know, the more guys came in in the class or whatever. Like Miami in the early 2000s was like a word with you, sir. They had Ed Reed, Buchanan, um, Rumpf. They had all those. Like that, that, that secondary that they had back then was probably the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. I believe all Sean Taylor, I think all five of the secondary guys all went in the first round. I mean, that's freaking absurd. I'm not as well versed on. I just remember watching those Miami teams in the early 2000s, and I was never, quote unquote, a Miami fan. I was a Notre Dame fan growing up. That's where my grandpa played. So, you know, I was a Notre Dame fan until I moved down here, and then you couldn't watch Notre Dame on TV anymore, and I kind of got indoctrinated into Georgia when I was very little. Um, but those Miami Hurricane teams in the early 2000s, man, those that those teams were insane, just insane. And that kind of the reason I bring that up is because with somebody like Charlie Strong recruiting and then Jamila Die recruiting, they have the potential if they can if they can get those kids down to South Florida feeling some kind of way about Miami again, the U, you know, Michael Irvin, those type of guys, if they all can get these kids feeling some type of way and all these kids start coming back to Miami, that is a program that can turn on a dime. Again, remember how in the last thing I was saying about USC is just a sleeping giant out on the West Coast, right? Well, we love Athens. We love everything about Athens. We love it. It's a classic city and all that stuff. But if I told you you had to live every day in Athens, but you could live every day in Miami on South Beach, if you're being honest, you're going to South Beach. And if you've <laughs> never been to South Beach and you don't know about South Beach, you're going to South Beach. Let me tell you, I've been to South Beach. I've had some. I, I've spent some time on those beaches, and. If you're telling me I can live there every day and I ain't got to pay for nothing, <laughs> let's go. So, hey, Jamel Adai, we're going to pay you the same amount of money, whatever, but you're going to get to live in South Beach and you're going to get recruited to South Beach. Let's go. Like, I, It's absolutely – they have a recruiting advantage that Athens doesn't, which is weather, beaches, all that stuff. Hey, the football is better in Georgia right now, but – Everything else, you know, facilities is better at Georgia too, but, you know, football facilities, those things are kind of freaking important, right? But you have to remember, and this is the part that I try to tell people all the time, because they're like, Georgia's better than this, and and they try to give me facts and all that stuff. Kids don't care about facts, because, I mean, some do. Some are really smart, and some are very educated, and they, they handle this and they approach it from a business perspective. But you also have to remember that they're kids. And you show them the beach, like that is a hell of a weapon for a recruiter. And now you've got all these guys, and you said you don't know how Georgia fans feel about a die leaving the program. Well, I'm just extremely thankful that he came here and he did what he did for us. But if we're being completely honest also, none of us knew who who he was a year ago. Kirby did a great job of identifying somebody who could produce for him and went and got him. And and maybe he was a hot name. Who knows? But the average person, we had no idea who he is. 
So I, I think it was something kind of funny, and I don't remember if it was Brooks who said it or somebody else, but they were saying, like, this is the business. Kirby's going to go out, and he's going to find the next guy. He's going to come in here. He's going to do a great job, and then he's going to leave. And then you just kind of got to get used to it. So I don't harbor any ill will for him, and I think that is a freaking home run for them. You partner them with somebody like Charlie Strong, they're going to have a lot of success together. That's just my opinion. Yeah, and to me, a succession plan is already in place for, for defense coordinator for years to come. You know, if Kevin Steele ever takes a job somewhere else, you got Charlie Strong step up, step up right to the plate, and then you got Jamel Adai right behind him to go be his co-DC and, and kind of bring him the new blood, uh, you know, for if and when Charlie Strong could get a new job. And that's talking, you know, five, six, seven years down the, down the road, you know, depending on how, how well they progress. But I think Chris Ball's getting there at the right time. He was, I mean, he is the best coach in the state of Florida, in my opinion. I, I don't think there's very much debating that. Uh, Napier, jury's still out on him, how he can do in a Power 5 job. Mike Norvell, same thing. It's looking like a prove-it year down there at FSU. I, I, I don't know how you feel about those two jobs, but and Florida's going to be one that we probably talk about within the next few weeks when it comes to, you know, what kind of staff they got down there in Gainesville. So I, I, I think they're ready to – I don't know if they're ready to make the leap just yet. I, I think Miami seven to eight wins this year in year one for Chris Ball's a win. Yeah, I don't. <clears throat> they didn't have like a, a massive recruiting class, right, or anything like that. So I don't think the turnaround is going to be immediate. They they had a pretty bare cupboard. Like that's one thing you cannot say about the Uni- University of Georgia situation is. Maybe Mark Richt wasn't doing everything that you wanted, but he didn't leave the covered bear. Coach Smart came into a really awesome situation and just made it better, right? Well, the situation in Miami is not great. It's really not great. The situation in Florida is probably better, right? Mullen was a joke of a coach, but it, he wasn't, and he wasn't a great recruiter, but there's still talent on that roster. And I happen to be a huge Billy Napier guy, um, personal reasons. But I think he's going to do a great job. I think Auburn really missed the boat by not hiring Napier because where Auburn carves out a large section of their recruits is where this kid grew up his entire life. And like in the middle part of Georgia that he has that on lockdown. His, his father was a, was a long time, high school coach here in Georgia. And I, I just think Napier's going to be a, a great hire for them. But this this Miami program, I would be absolutely stunned and shocked if they're not playing big boy football in the next five years where, like, you're honestly worried about them. I, I mean, that what if Chris Ball can even try and replicate what he did at Oregon where he was getting a top 10 – recruiting class top 15 recruiting class i mean they got i I just looked up they had the top they had a number 15th ranked the 15th ranked recruiting class this year uh in 2022 the the quote-unquote transition class for mario cristobal and that staff and he sealed that class without his offense without any of his coordinators in place the majority of that legwork when he was there was before he hired a single coordinator which made it all the more impressive I, I think they're set up for success, and like Dan said, if they're not back in a few years where you're worried about them as a Georgia fan, as a Florida fan, as as any fan, then it, it is a huge, huge letdown. So it's going to be interesting to watch. We're going to keep an eye on them as, not only as the season gets closer, but as the years goes on to see how they do down there. And which brings us to our main event topic. I texted Dan, this, I, I texted Dan yesterday that after seeing some of the reactions on Twitter, on social media as a whole, that we have to take a chainsaw and just absolutely tear up some of these takes regarding the quarterback situation. So, to start it off, take let, let, let's establish one thing. Dan, and, and, and feel free to, to kick in on this one if you disagree. But there is a huge difference, huge difference, between quote-unquote flashing in practice and straight up beating someone out for their job in practice. Huge difference. Flashing means you're making plays. Beating out means you're consistently, and I mean consistently, 
making plays, and overall is a better player. Uh, yeah, there's a massive difference between making plays and winning a job. The way I've always looked at it and the way it was explained to me at a very young age is the only way you take somebody's job is they stop performing or you massively outperform them because they've obviously done something to win the job. So as long as they're doing what they're supposed to do, it's going to be extremely difficult to take that person's job. So the only way you take it is they stop performing, right? On the field, they're not doing a good job. Or you are just so much better that it's impossible not to play you. And that's something I've always told my kids in any sport. I always tell them with the politics and all that stuff and they get worried about everything. So I'm like, be so good that they can't not play you. That's what I always say. But yeah, massive difference. So I'll let you continue and we'll talk about it more. But you're right. There's a massive difference between making some plays and taking somebody's job. And that's where the point is getting lost. That is where words are getting twisted. That is where hype is starting to build is because people don't understand what the difference is between flashing and beating out. If you're flashing in practice, that doesn't mean you're beating out someone. When you're flashing, obviously, it means you're making plays. Now, depends on whether they mean you're flashing consistently and making plays consistently or you're doing it every now and then. And and right now, from all indications, there's been multiple reports to back this up. This is no insider information. You can go find it on the free internet for free. But if you want the extra scoop, Brooks, if you're listening, here's your free plug. Patreon.com forward slash Brooks Austin. Got all the nucks for you. I think he dropped, I mean, he's dropped easily a whole tray of them as he talks about in this last three days alone regarding practice. So if you want some more information on this whole situation, go over there. He has it for you. But back to the point. It's, it's not a secret anymore. Carson Beck, Brock Vandegrift, Stetson Bennett, all receiving first team reps. All receiving first team reps. And as our friend Brooks also pointing out in his latest article on SI Dogs Daily, talking about what we know about Georgia through two weeks of spring ball, these guys are flashing. Beck, you know, the former second-string quarterback, uh, was named the second-string quarterback just a year ago, you know, before JT went down and they opted to go back to Stetson. That guy's playing well. He's getting reps with the first team. But what's not making sense to me is why Beck, and Vandegrift getting reps with the first team just automatically puts into people's mind, hey, they're playing better than Setson. Hey, they're going to get starter. That doesn't make sense to me. It is an evaluation period. Spring is before everything gets serious and you start preparing your guys. You start preparing the guys you saw that you know are good and you know they're going to be your starters for you know the season. The fall, I mean, whatever you see in the spring – carries over into the fall. You're just going to build on what you do in the spring. So why would you not give a guy like Carson Beck, a guy like Brock Vandegrift, a guy like Gunnar Stockton, first-team reps? You know what you have in Stetson Bennett. The dude just took you to a national championship, okay? Why would you not give those guys behind him a chance? Because that's the future of your team. And if you want a fair evaluation, you have to be able to evaluate what they're doing with the same personnel. You can't say well, this is what Stetson does with this group, and this is what Beck does with this group, and then make a fair comparison because, you know, you've got to be able to see them in the same. And also, the other part of that is that you're preparing these guys in case Stetson's not there for whatever reason. And then the times that we live in, there's a million different reasons why Stetson might not be available on a Saturday. So you have to start preparing these guys to play. I, it, you, the oldest adage in any sport is you're only one play away from starting if you're the second string guy, right? So next man up, next man up mentality. You you have to prepare these guys to play, and just because you're preparing them to play doesn't mean that you're necessarily trying to get him to take the other guy's job or anything like that. These guys are going to get reps. They have they have to be able to get reps, and to be completely honest. It doesn't matter who you're a fan of and what team is. You want to know that the guy who behind the guy 
is capable of stepping in and winning football games. Because if you don't have that, then you're in a really bad situation. Think about when Dewan Mathis went down or not. I mean, technically kind of did, right? I mean, he got his shoulder basically dislocated. That guy, uh, what was his name? Bumper Pool. That's absolutely gotta, destroyed him. <laughs> that's got to be one of the greatest football names ever, Bumper Pool. He absolutely destroyed him. But what if Stetson wasn't able to come in? I mean, there's a really, really good chance we lose that game against Arkansas, right? So what if Stetson goes out against Oregon and, I don't know, one of those Samoans absolutely just demolishes Stetson on like second play of the game? Well, if you had an ignorant coaching staff that didn't give the other guys first team reps, then that would be the first time. I mean, that, that would be a horrible situation to be in, no? So, I, hey, listen, in fall camp, Stetson's going to get 93% of the reps. You already know that's going to happen. But right now, Stetson doesn't need the reps. Hell, he didn't take a snap with the first team all of spring practice last year. So, I mean, and then the guy goes up. I mean, <laughs> Stetson. Stetson might be on the sidelines drinking right now for all we know, smoking cigars, and God bless him. But, uh, yeah, I mean, these other kids, they're getting an opportunity to compete, and, and and I hope that they're doing well. I hope they're taking advantage of the situation. But it doesn't mean that they're going to take his job. But if we believe Kirby and he's being honest, he says that the best quarterback's going to play, and if, 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 that's, if Carson Beck just – outperforms everybody to an extreme level then i guess there's an op you know i we have if if we're gonna say kirby's not a liar and and beck were to go out there and just absolutely outplay everyone and start he he would start the first game of the season i just i don't see any scenario where that happens Stetson, I, I told you the first time we talked about this, the only way Stetson is not starting quarterback is either he's dead, hurt, or he just called Kirby, Kirby Smart some name that I can't say on air. That's or, funny. as you said, gave him the double barrel. Yeah, the double barrel. <laughs> exact quote. Dan says, walks in the room and gives him the double barrel. <laughs> yeah, Guys. Don't fall for this whole thing about, oh, so-and-so is taking first-team reps. He's taking the job. That's nowhere close to reality. You're just preparing yourself to be let down. Because like you were all last season, like you were, you spent the whole three to four weeks after the SEC Championship game praying and hoping that Stetson Bennett was not the quarterback. Praying and hoping that when Todd Munkin and Kirby Smart took to the podium in Miami, that they would say something that would indicate Stetson Bennett's not your starter. No, guys, he just won you a national championship. Who in their right mind would bench their quarterback that just won the national championship? It is creating a situation very akin to the often talk about Justin Fields versus Jake Fromm situation. And I'm not getting into that situation. Dan, that is something we can get into on another day. But unless Justin Bennett's not performing, like Dan said, unless he's not doing his thing, unless he's not doing his job, I don't I don't see anyone taking his job. I mean, Beck, we know, I mean, from everything we're hearing, from the, the nugs Brooks gives us on Patreon, which I'm not going into on this platform, if you want to know what he goes into, you can go sub to that. I mean, these guys are talented. I mean, from our perspective, from an outsider's view, we know they're talented. We know Beck, former four-star. Vandegraaff, what, a former five-star? I mean, Lincoln Riley recruited him to Oklahoma. There's something there with Brock Vandegraaff. I don't care that, you know, if he got, if, if he, if Lincoln, you know, went with Caleb Williams instead. The interest was still there. Well, it's almost like if he, you never know the recruiting things, but it's almost like we passed up Caleb Williams for Brock Vandegrift and they kind of swapped, right? Because Caleb Williams was going to come to Georgia and Brock was going to go to Oklahoma. But because of COVID, remember, and, you know, it's almost absurd how many times we plug Brooks in a single show. <laughs> but, you know, Brooks was talking about how Georgia kind of adjusted the, their recruitment during the COVID thing where they – 
they were taking local guys as opposed to guys from across the country because we were seeing so many kids want to go back closer to home that maybe you know that that shifted their attention from Caleb Williams to Brock because he's from here and and, and you know what that's not wrong and Brooks was actually ahead of the curve because he said Caleb Williams might want to leave and what did he do he was at Oklahoma and left after one season to go to USC so you know great freaking Great freaking call by Brooks on that because he was ahead of the curve on that. He said that before he'd ever stepped foot on campus that the guy might w- want to leave after a year. So uh, Brooks Brooks is a Nostradamus as far as that goes, huh? I just that just hit me just now, by the way. <laughs> and I, and I think it wasn't only specific to Caleb Williams. It was it was to all the guys that went out of state that went out you know of their comfort zone in that COVID year and decided hey let's go to Oklahoma you know because I'm not committing to the school I'm committing to Lincoln Riley and for all those guys half that roster's gone gone I mean straight up gone I mean the moment Lincoln Riley said deuces gave him the peace sign like you know the the Trojan sign they 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 went with them I mean not some of them went to South Carolina, but that's that's another topic we'll get into. That's that's going to be that's going to be fun. Uh, I, I I'm seeing a lot of hot takes on South Carolina, but yeah, Stetson Bennett's not losing his job, guys. And when he does, I, I by all means, I will come back and tell you I was wrong. And I'm sure Dan would do the same. But at the end of the day, are we going to drill on it because we have an agenda against any one of these guys? No. But there are certain people in this fan base that would love nothing more than for Stetson Bennett not to start a single game at the University of Georgia. Dude started, what, I think he started 15 games at the University of Georgia, well, over 15 games at the University of Georgia now, and has taken probably the least amount of reps a single starting quarterback has ever taken. Better yet, the least amount of reps in practice that a single national champion starting quarterback has ever taken. There has been no one less prepared as a national champion quarterback than Stetson Bennett. No one. Can't find me a guy. So... In a bit of comedy, just to end the segment, did you see who committed to the University of Georgia today? Yes, I I have not checked the um the comment section of that. I hope that Georgia fans. It's are... everything you would think it would be. It's everything you want it to be. This is the one guy was like, "Oh my God, make it stop." <laughs> So if you haven't heard, Stetson Bennett's little brother committed to play quarterback at the University of Georgia. Oh, the the comments on that were amazing. They were like, "This is this is a hell that I don't want to wake up from." <laughs> Gosh, I mean, look, I, I I don't want to go into the whole Stetson Bennett hate because I mean, look, I remember going back into back when it was the playoffs and Georgia was about to play Michigan and Alabama. I mean, Stetson Bennett made a post, and when you go back and look through the history, the comments were turned off because when you look at all the comments on those posts, it was people just straight up hating them. I mean, guys, there's nothing he can do about being the starting quarterback. He just goes out there and does his job every single day, and not to mention, he does it at a high level. Whether you like it or not, whether you like him or not, he does it at the high level. I don't care if he's going to be a first-round draft pick. Dan Kiley doesn't care if he goes to work to State Farm next year, you know? As long as he's successful at Georgia and gives Georgia the best chance to win, everyone should be happy. I'll tell you this much. I'm going to buy his book when he writes it. <laughs> because I'll be he right had, behind you in line for that one. Because he's got that attitude. That he doesn't give a shit. And I guarantee it, he's going to tell you everything you want to know. And it's going to be a dang good book. So, guys, that is going to wrap it up for episode 37 of the Top Dog Talk podcast. That was Dan Colley. I'm Harrison Reno. Guys, we will see you next week for episode 38 of the top Dog talk podcast and who knows we may have some interesting topics to talk about obviously we will know the results of the national championship of college basketball i mean we will we will know that we will know the the results of duke carolina uh saturday reminder for everyone if you have dan kiley's number do not text dan kiley anywhere from nine o'clock to uh <laughs> the end of that north carolina duke game he will be glued to the tv and I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Dan, real quick before we wrap it up, prediction, on the spot, predict the final four. Who are the winners? Oh, uh, it's Both a Duke, Kansas. Can- Duke, Kansas national championship game. 
I, I, I think Duke will win. I got, I'm riding Kansas. I think all the Kansas way. I wins the national championship. I, I, I can't disagree. I mean, as much as I would like to see Coach K win it in his last year, as much as that would be great storytelling, I, I think Kansas is over the top this year. I mean, is is really dang good. Yeah, I so, think it's, I think it'd be two great games. Two awesome games. Looking forward to it, guys. Also looking forward to episode 38. We are fastly approaching episode 40 of the Top of the Hawk podcast. Guys, once again, Dan Kylie, Harrison Reno, we'll see you episode 38 of the Top Dog Talk.